Well, hello again, brothers. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. That'll be our study, our passage of study today. It really has been quite a week, hasn't it? Um, a week like no other, certainly no other in the history of our country. And I imagine with a, as diverse a crowd as we have in our Amen Bible study that there are some of you that are really hoping that, uh, that I say something about the events of last week. Um, there are others of you Again, because of the diverse crowd that we have at Amen, who I imagine are hoping that I don't say anything. I would have to say to all of you, the truth is I, I have a lot to say about what happened last week. But you know what really matters? What really matters is not what I have to say. But what really matters to all of us is what God has to say. And as I prepared for uh, this study in Matthew chapter 2, it really hit me that that weeks before January 6th, we committed as men to be here in this passage on this week together. And God knew that. God knew this is where we would be on this day. So I invite you now to join me in trusting that God has a word for us this week from His Scripture. Let me go ahead and read Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read all 23 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream, warmed, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, a voice of weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream, to, appeared to dream, uh, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be, be fulfilled. He would be called a Nazarene. Brothers, this is the gospel of Christ. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we sit here uh, waiting for you to teach us from your word, Father, we would humble ourselves, even in light of all the events that took place this last week. Father, our hurt, our anger, maybe our shame, whatever it is, Father, that we're dealing with, we submit all of that to you and ask that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we want to hear your voice. So teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Brothers, I think it's important for us before we dive into the passage to make sure we have a little bit of the context of what we hear, have here in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, the writer, has jumped ahead since chapter 1. You remember at the end of chapter 1, um, he just said that his wife gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And now we've moved on to the story of the Magi. Jumped ahead probably a year later, probably no more than two. We can tell that because of the fact that uh, Herod, when he goes to kill the children, said, let's make sure um, that uh, we kill anyone who is under the age of two. So he wasn't child wasn't quite two yet, but he's not a baby and this isn't in the manger. Notice that it is in Bethlehem, but when the uh, wise men go to see him, they go see Jesus in a house, it says. And we're introduced here to Herod the king, and we're introduced to the wise men, sometimes called kings, because of the gifts that they brought. We don't know if they were kings or not, but the gifts that they brought were very expensive gifts, uh, particularly uh, the gold and the frankincense. So gold and spices uh, led us to believe that these are wealthy men, maybe possibly king, uh, kings. But also, as you keep in mind what we're looking at here, I think it's important for us to remember what we said last week, and that is that Matthew wrote with an intentionality here. Matthew uh, doesn't waste details, um, and he doesn't just go through history for the sake of history. He's, remember, he's not writing uh, Jesus' biography. Uh, he's instead, instead giving us these literary pictures. They're true stories. They're, they're truth. They are history, uh, but helping us to understand something about Jesus. And we know from chapter 1, he wants us to understand Jesus as the anointed one, as the son of Abraham, as the son of David, that this is the king. This is the son of the promise. This is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament promise. And he is the king in the line of David, the king that was promised to David in his line that would reign forever. And so I've entitled uh, this chapter, this study for us, The Battle of the Kings. We have King Jesus, we have King Herod, we have these wise men who are possibly kings, and we have one other king who we'll come to later. So there's three things I want us to see here in this passage. First of all, in verses 1 through 12, I want us to see the people 
and the realm of the king. If you're going to have a king and you're going to have a kingdom, there has to be a realm and there has to be a people. So if Jesus is a king, then there has to be a people that he reigns over and there has to be a realm in which he reigns. But before we get to that, let's ask ourselves some questions in regards to this passage, these verses, verse, verses 1 through 12. The first is this, who was, who was King Herod? Well, we know from history that King Herod, or Herod I, or Herod the Great as he was called, ruled from 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. And that Herod the Great was an incredible builder. Uh, he's the one that, that, that really rebuilt the temple. There was Herod's temple, and it was magnificent. There were other great buildings, his summer home at Masada, that he built. He was also, besides being a great builder, he was a, a ruthless, evil tyrant. So while he was building all these projects and it was, it was bringing some sense of grandeur to uh, the country of Israel, he was also just a ruthless, evil man. He killed uh, two of his wives. He killed three of his own children. Now, this is who King Herod was, very ruthless. But what about these wise men? Who are these wise men uh, as we see them in the Bible? Now, I know we, we sing a song at Christmas, uh, We Three Kings of Orient are coming from the east. Um, three kings, is that, is that accurate? Well, truth is we don't know how many there were. It says wise men, but it doesn't say how many wise men. And you say, well, why do we end up with three? And I think we'll, uh, as scholars say, probably just because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we think maybe there were just three of them. Um, and again, why would we say they were kings? Are we sure they were kings? No, we're not sure that they were kings. Um, the word here used for wise men is actually magi. Um, why do we say kings? Again, because of the magnificence of the gift, because the gold in particular would have been from someone wealthy, would have been the actual currency of kings. What is true in our, in our uh, Christmas carol, our song, is that they did come from the east. They did come from the orient. Probably Persia, or more likely Babylon. And what's key here for us to realize is that these were Gentiles. These were not Jewish men. Um, they had come probably from Babylon. And uh, the Greek word here, or the word here used for wise men is, is magi. It's where we get the word magic. Um, these were um, wise men in the sense that they, they, they studied sorcery. They studied astrology. Um, in fact, uh, they would have been experts in astrology, clearly, because they've They've studied these things and now are following these stars and probably studying ancient, ancient text, ancient Jewish text, because they take some of their, uh, their statements in regards to what they're doing here um, from the Old Testament, clearly. So these magi, these astrologists, they're way outside the Jewish religion. Um, these who are coming to worship Jesus Christ uh, are not from Israel, and not only are they Gentiles, um, but they practice an entirely different religion. They're experts in that religion. And yet, these are the ones who are coming to worship Jesus Christ. Well, what about, what about this, this star here? Well, I did a lot of reading about this star. Maybe you've done the same. And there's lots of different theories uh, in regards to that, um, ranging from um, this uh, time about 4 BC where the the planets, uh, two of the planets actually came close enough that maybe they gave off an aura. Um, others talking about comet, but there is no record of a comet there at that time. And of course, 
Um, this is the, uh, the uh, gospel of Christ. This is the one who was born uh, of a virgin, born incarnate, who rose from the dead, who was announced by angels. So the supernatural is at play. It just simply could have been something that God did supernaturally. We're not told exactly about that. But why is it that the Magi thought that the star meant that there was a king? That's important for us. Probably they got it from Numbers uh, chapter, the book of Numbers. In fact, I want you to turn there uh, in your Bibles, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So Numbers chapter 24. And if you haven't seen this before, this is very interesting. Remember that the Jewish people were captives in Babylon, and at that time they would have had the first five books of, of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. They would have had the book of Numbers, and maybe these magi from, from the east um, had come across these texts, and they would have read this prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, uh, verse 17. It says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So this prophecy about a star rising out of Jacob, rising out of the land of Israel, and, and announcing a, a king. And so they've come uh, to figure this out. But there's a couple other passages, too, um, that I think would be important for us to, to note. One of them is Psalm 72. Psalm 72 uh, speaks of um, the, the dominion of this, of this king, of King Jesus, and it's a prophecy of what is to come. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11 says this, May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. Certainly, as we see the Gospels illuminating the Old Testament for us, we now understand and have a fuller picture of what Solomon was given here by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this psalm. But there's something else. In Isaiah chapter 60, we read uh, these words, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness all the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen by you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Just three passages of Scripture that speak to this moment, even as we think about the Old Testament, as I said, illuminating for us. Uh, the Old Testament. So what is Matthew teaching us here? Remember, he's intentional about what he's given here. He's given us this, this, uh, this historical picture, this, this literary glimpse into the life uh, of Jesus. What is Matthew teaching us here? I think what Matthew is teaching us is this, that Jesus is the king over all places and all people. That his kingdom is not just going to be over Israel. It's not just for the Israelites. 
right from the start. And we've already noted this in the genealogy in chapter 1, where we see Gentiles mentioned in there. But here again, those who are coming to worship him are these royalty from the East, these Gentiles, even from another religion. The king is actually going to be able to, to um, reign over and to bring in um, subjects, even those that would seem completely outside of the possibility of coming to the king. Someone who's in a completely different religion. And, com- and, and how in the world would they come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the king is going to make that happen. He has authority over all places and over all people. And right away, we're seeing this in chapter 2. Well, what does this mean for us? As I mentioned at the very beginning, we really are here in Amen, a, a, a diverse group of men, many different ages, many different backgrounds, um, many different thoughts. Um, and I would have to say this, even in light of the events of this last week, the events of this last year, maybe the events of the last several years. Brothers, I am tired of us propping up other kingdoms. And I think you should be tired of it too. I'm tired of us as men who call ourselves Christians, who sit before the word, and yet for many different reasons continue to prop up other kingdoms. And I'm, I'm speaking to all of us here, brothers. I'm weary of that. And I think you should be weary of that too. Brothers, we have a king, and his name is Jesus Christ. And our allegiance belongs only to him, only to Jesus. That is our king. He is the one who is the king over all places and over all people, no matter what time in history you have been born, no matter where on this planet you have been born, no matter what your passport says. We have a king, and our allegiance is to him. And brothers, if there is ever a time in the history of of our nation, when we need to live out that allegiance, it's now. And we need to, to confess and repent of propping up other earthly kingdoms, other earthly worldviews, and move towards in surrender to our king, in allegiance to our king. So the people and the realm of the king that are described here are over all places and all people. The second thing I want us to see is the battle plan of the king. Verses 13 through 18, the battle plan of this king, of King Jesus. Why why this fleeing to Egypt? What's what's going on here? Why does Matthew uh, bring up this point? Well, um, Obviously, right there, you can see the reason they go to Egypt in the first place is because an angel comes to them, uh, comes to Joseph and says, you need to leave and you need to go uh, to Egypt. Um, You will note here in Matthew, in fact, if you read your Old Testament, as one scholar pointed out, I think it was R.C. Sproul pointed out, that uh, uh, angels, the, the word angel appears more in our New Testament, or excuse me, in our Bibles, than the word uh, sin. Um, that uh, when you just take account of the time, the time uh, that God speaks of angels or angels appear, 
uh, in His Word, uh, it's massive. Um, what does that say to us? What does it remind us of? Well, I think it reminds us of the fact that there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. And even what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 2 is something that uh, is spoken of in Revelation. In speaking about the, the great picture of redemptive history where God is redeeming His people, um, you might remember in Revelation chapter 12, if you don't remember, please go read that uh, later on today. Revelation 12 talks about a woman giving birth to a son. And this son is going to be the, the salvation of God. And it says that the, that the dragon, the evil one, is waiting there to devour the child as soon as he is born. And when you read the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that. You see that there is another king, and it's the king of this world. It's the king of darkness. It's Satan himself. And he is, is, is wanting to do whatever he can to thwart this king, King Jesus, from coming into human history. And we see it right here in Matthew chapter 2. He's going to, to use Herod, King Herod, to be his vessel to try to destroy King Jesus because Satan, as king of darkness, is king of this world. And he thinks of himself that way because you, you'll see later on in Matthew chapter uh, 4 that he presents himself in the temptation to Jesus as the one who has the kingdoms of the world at his disposal and thinks that he can hand them over to Jesus if Jesus will just bow down and worship him. Satan himself thinks he's king of this world and he wants to destroy Jesus. But in this spiritual battle, God is going to do what He wants to do. God is in control. God is, in so is sovereign. Nothing has thwarted Him. We see there in verse 15 that Matthew refers again uh, to Old Testament Scripture. We talked about this last week, that Matthew is rooting the, the, the reality of Christ as the, as the anointed one, as the promise of the Old Testament, as the son of David, as the king, he's rooting that in all the Old Testament. And here he quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. You can turn in your Bibles uh, there. Uh, it's right after the book of Daniel. It's always hard for me to remember the minor prophets. Um, but Hosea is e easy because it's like Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel and Amos. So if you get to Joel and Amos, you've gone too far uh, right there between Daniel and uh, um Joel, you'll find, uh, Dan, uh, you'll find Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, this is the quote, this is the scripture that Matthew says is being fulfilled here. And it says, it's interesting, it says in 11, chapter 11, Hosea verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now as you go on to read chapter 11, you realize, well, this is speaking past. He's not speaking forward, it seems. It seems like he's speaking, uh, Hosea is speaking about what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt uh, in, the, in the Exodus. Um, but here, Matthew is saying, no, there's something greater that's taking place here. And he's making this connection between Christ and, uh, and Moses, and Christ and uh, the Exodus. We'll explain that a little bit more. Just hold that thought for a second. But here... Um, What's happening is that Matthew is pointing out that not only does 
Hosea 11 verse 1 point backward, but it also has pointed forward uh, to Christ. And then why this slaughter of the children? Uh, I, I know this is uh, disturbing to anyone who would read this. Um, and there are some that in the, in the study of Herod the Great, Herod the First, would say, well, there's no record of this. There couldn't have been a slaughter of the children because um, there's no record of this ever taking place. Well, when you realize that the Bethlehem was a very small town and that probably um, all the children under the age of two would have amounted to somewhere between 15 and 20 children, still terrible and still a massacre in a town like that. Remember that Herod was a ruthless, ruthless leader. Uh, he had done much worse than this. Um, in some ways, his ruthlessness was so great that this slaughter in Bethlehem was kind of a non-event. It's not, it's not surprising that it wasn't written about because there were other great atrocities um, that he committed. But why does, why does Matthew mention this? And then why does he uh, attach it to um, this uh, uh, quote from Jeremiah uh, chapter 31? Well, let's turn in our Bibles to, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, Jeremiah is a little bit easier to find right after Isaiah and before you get into all the minor prophets. Um, Jeremiah chapter 31. Remember, this is um, the time of uh, the Babylonian captivity. And so um, the people of Israel, uh, because of their great wickedness, um, God's discipline has come upon them and they have been taken as captives away into Babylon, but Jeremiah is prophesying that there will be a time when you will return. God hasn't left you. He will remain faithful. And he has, as we have read before, a plan for you, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. But in Matthew, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, this is the quote that Matthew uh, brings up, the prophecy that Matthew brings up. Verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in, in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Speaking of the patriarch's wife, Rachel, who was buried uh, near Ramah, and Ramah apparently was the place where the people of Israel were gathered before they were taken into captivity. So gathered there by the Babylonians before they were dragged away into captivity. It was a place of great weeping. It was a place of, of Israel losing their children. But Jeremiah here, as you read the whole chapter, chapter 31, as you read the book, he's saying, yes, there is sadness. There was sadness at that moment. There was, there was tragedy at that moment. There was trauma at that moment. But God is faithful and he is going to bring about salvation. He has a plan for you to bring you back out of Babylon and into the promised land once again. But what is Matthew uh, teaching us here? Well, I think Matthew's teaching us a couple of things. I think, first of all, Matthew uh, wants us to understand that Moses was a type. Now, it's a theological word when you apply it to Scripture. Uh, it doesn't mean that, um, it means kind of like a person who was a foreshadowing of that. Someone whose, whose behavior and actions, while true and accurate and historical in the time, were actually pointing to something greater. Moses as Matthew's pointing out, was actually a type of Jesus. He's making that connection. Not only that, 
But the exodus from Egypt and the return from captivity in Babylon was actually to point forward to, uh, was a type of the ultimate salvation that would be offered in Christ. So even as we read about the Exodus, even as we read about the restoration from Babylon and the return to Israel, it was always meant to, to point us forward to a much greater moment of, of being set free from bondage, of a, of a much more magnificent moment than being um, released as captives from Babylon. And so what is Matthew teaching us here? What is the, the bottom line? It's this, that King Jesus, Jesus Christ, our King, has come to lead us out of the ultimate slavery. That is the battle plan of this king. As he wages war with the king of darkness, the king of this world, his battle plan is, I am going to get my captives and I am going to bring them out. I am going to take my people. I am going to redeem them. And just like I brought my people out of Exodus, and just like uh, out of Egypt in Exodus, just like I brought my people out of Babylon, in a more magnificent way, in a more amazing way, in a more uh, 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 dynamic way. Um, I am going to, to save a people for myself. And what people? From all places and all times. This is his battle plan. But what, is that, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that ki this king has come to lead us out of the ultimate slavery. It means this, brothers. You and I, we don't need a religion. We need a rescue. We don't need a, a Bible study. Um, we need to be transformed by God's Word. We don't need a better laws in our country and and a better economy. That's not our ultimate need. No, our ultimate need is we need our hearts changed. That's what should drive our prayers, brothers. Our prayers should be in line with, the, with the, the battle plan of the king. And the battle plan of the king is to rescue those who are, who are held captive, beginning with ourselves, beginning with our, with our own families, beginning with our, our own hearts. And so even as I say that, I would warn us from thinking uh, that I'm talking about them, those out there, those who aren't in this Bible study, those who aren't in the church. No, I'm looking at our churches now, and you are too. I'm looking at my own heart, and hopefully you are too. And what we need is this King to rescue us from our own darkness. We need changed hearts. We need to be the ones who are transformed. We need to stop thinking in arrogance, in spiritual arrogance and in intellectual arrogance that out there, those people, they're, they're the problem. Well, no, let's start here. Let's start right in here, brothers. And let us first ask the king, please rescue my trapped heart. Transform me. Change me. Do your battle in me, Lord, that I might be your subject. I want to be part of the battle plan of the King. And finally, brothers, 
in these last verses, verses 19 through 23, we see the weapons of the king. What is all this about Nazareth and the Nazar- and, and Jesus being a Nazarene? Again, let's not forget this whole study. Let's not lose sight of this. Matthew's intentional. He doesn't, he doesn't waste any detail. So something is intended here. When you look at verse 23, uh, you'll notice that it's not cited from anywhere. In fact, you could search your whole Bibles and you will not find any Old Testament quote saying that the Messiah, the Anointed One, was to be a Nazarene. So what's going on here? Is Matthew just making stuff up? Well, notice a couple of things. Uh, First of all, notice that in the previous times when he speaks about what the prophet said, he uses prophet singular, and he even speaks of some of them saying the prophet Jeremiah. But notice here that it says, uh, verse 23, what was spoken by the prophets. In other words, he, 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 it's plural. And many scholars believe what Matthew is saying is that if you take the message of the prophets about the anointed one and you put them together, uh, you're going to get something that looks like a Nazarene. Why does he say that? Well, he's, he's speaking to, he's writing to Jewish people and they would have understood what he meant by Nazareth and Nazarene. And what he meant by that is that it's a, that it's a, a nothing place. <laughs> it's, a, it's a backwater town. Um, there, there's nothing great about it. In fact, you might remember in, in John chapter 1, verse 46, um, when Philip and Nathaniel are called by Jesus to be his disciples. Remember what Nathaniel says when he finds out um, that uh, Jesus is from Nazareth? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really? The anointed one from Nazareth? That's just a nothing town. But see, that's what the prophets foretold. The prophets foretold that the anointed one, the son of David, the king, would not be what you think he would be. There's many passages we could turn to, but let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, talking about Jesus. And these are familiar verses, but think about it in light of what Matthew has given us right here. In in Isaiah 53, it says this about Jesus, about the anointed one that was to come. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The point is this. When Jesus came, not only, as we talked about last week, did he just have a common name, like many other boys named Yeshua, but he wasn't, he wasn't anything special to look at. He wasn't from a prominent family. He wasn't from a prominent town. In fact, he was from a backwater town. When Jesus came, he came in in absolute humility. So what is Jesus saying? I mean, what is Matthew saying about Jesus when he talks about him being uh, from Nazareth and being a Nazarene, being from this nothing town? Well, Matthew is teaching us this, that the king, King Jesus, 
will use weapons of humility and sacrifice, not the world's weapons. The king, when he comes, Jesus will use the weapons of humility and of sacrifice. What does that mean for us? Well, I'd ask us all to think about this question. As we follow Jesus, as we battle with him, what weapons do you think our king wants us to fight with right now, in this time, this week of January 2021? As we live our lives out in the world, as we walk around Memphis, what are the tools, what are the weapons that do you think God wants us to use to battle in this culture? I would tell you that we have two problems right now in our churches. I think one of our problems is this. We're fighting each other. We're not, we're not operating with the battle plan of the king because we're fighting each other. And we think, we think we're fighting for him. And yet we're fighting our brother. The other problem I think we have is I think we're using the weapons of this world. I think we have been duped by the king of darkness to use the weapons of this world and worse, to use them against each other. And we're thinking that, that by force, that by arrogance, that by shame, that by uh, all these different tools that the world uses, that somehow we will usher in the kingdom to this place, to this time. Brothers, there's nothing in Scripture that says that's the way to go. In fact, it says, it says the opposite. This past week, um, just actually the last couple of days, and I, I read a couple of articles, and I would, I would commend them to you. One is in uh, USA Today. It's by Ed Setzer. It has to do with a reckoning for evangelicals. And I take this to heart personally. That was a sobering read for me as a follower of Jesus. The other one was from Dr. Russell Moore, who, who leads the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, ELRC. And you can go to his website, Dr. Russell Moore's website, and you can read an article there that I think is uh, sobering words for us. And it's a call for us to make sure we're following the king and to make sure we're using the weapons of the kingdom and not the weapons of the world. So how are we to respond right now in our time as followers of Jesus? I think we're supposed to respond with repentance. I think we're supposed to respond with prayer. I think we're supposed to respond with humility. I think we're supposed to respond with sacrificial love because those are the weapons the king has given us to battle in this time and in, in any time. These are the weapons of the king. And brothers, as we think about how to follow Jesus this week and this year, as we move in and through a disturbing time in, the, in our history, our personal histories, I call us again to recognize what Matthew is laying out here before us recognize the people in the realm of the king. He is the one who has come to rule over everything and everyone. I call us to, 
to recognize again the, the battle plan of the king. It's for changed hearts, not changed economies. We start with hearts. We start with ourselves. We start with repentance in our homes, in our churches. The battle plan of the king is to transform hearts. And we also must remember to fight with the weapons of the king and not the weapons of this world. Oh, brothers, let us be, let us be men who are, who are leaders in repentance. Let, let us show our leadership that way. Let us be the first to repent in our homes, the first to repent in our workplaces. Let us be the leaders of repentance in our churches. Brothers, let, let us be the ones who, who are called to prayer and calling others to prayer. Let us be leaders in prayer. Let us make that what we strive to battle with. And let us walk with humility. Let's truly count others better than ourselves. Let's follow our Savior's example, who didn't account equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let us be leaders in humility and let us be leaders in sacrificial love. Let's be the first ones to lay down our lives for the disenfranchised, the first ones to lay down our lives for those who are weak and struggling, the first ones to lay down our lives for a, a broken world that is crying out for a king who will rule like a shepherd, who will rule in grace and love. And may we, as brothers, as men, may we enjoy the amazing grace of surrendering to our King. Brothers, there is no greater peace and joy than you and I can find than when we surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, the Anointed One, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. Let's pray. Father, sink these words deep into our hearts. Lord, not my words. Please, Lord, not my words. Sink your word deep into our hearts. Father, take everything that is of value that we have discussed and thought about today, that is, that is truth, that is from your word, and seal it to us and transform us, Father. And Father, everything that is of no value, everything that is distraction, everything that might be uh, a, a, a way in which the king of darkness would, would, would steal uh, our attention away from allegiance to you as our king, Lord, take that away. Thank you, Father, for sending us King Jesus to rule over all people, in all places, even people like us, even in a place like this. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Have a good week.